The Word of God in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell tell your requests to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, again, good morning, and thanks for joining us on this live stream. It is uh, a little bit strange to talk to a camera. There are some people here, so I will talk to them as well. Thanks for being here. Uh, but uh, most of you at home, and I do encourage you to take a look at the bulletin because what we're doing today, I thought it would be fitting at this point, at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews, to stop and review and to look through uh, what we've learned and to do it kind of quick because if you go, uh, we're going to take sort of a high pass over this text and I think you're gonna, it's going to help you to see how it all fits together and how it's sort of a coherent argument that's being made throughout the whole book. It's very easy to sort of get lost in a detail and, uh, you know, we sort of get focused in on one verse or whatever and then uh, we kind of lose track of what the whole thing is about. And so this morning the title of our message is Privilege and Perseverance. And that is uh, the title we've given to the whole book of uh, Hebrews. And so what I've got printed in your bulletin today is kind of an outline of what we've looked at so far. And so I just want to read these statements to you, and I think you'll get sort of a sense of the movement of the whole thing. So here here we go. God has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus. Jesus has ascended above the angels. This calls for a response from us. Pay much closer attention. Don't drift away. Jesus is the prototypical and the consummate human being. Those are ways of saying Jesus is a perfect human being. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. And this calls for a response. Consider Jesus. (laughs) Dwell your mind on Jesus. Then in chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. Remember, this is written to Hebrews, and nobody's greater than Moses, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is faithful over the house of God, God's household. Moses is described in this text as faithful in God's house, and Jesus is faithful over 
God's house. And this calls for a response. Do not harden your hearts. You might remember the people of God under the leadership of Moses did harden their hearts and ended up not entering the promised land. So the response is called for here. Do not do what they did. Do not harden your hearts. Instead, strive to enter his rest. Strive to enter the rest of God in Christ. God's word is living and active, leaving us fully exposed to God. And we have a great high priest in Jesus. And this calls for a response. Hold fast and draw near. Hold fast to Christ, to the confession of our faith, and draw near to God in Christ. So this is just a review. And the situation we're dealing with in the book of Hebrews is a situation of impending persecution. The Christians of that day were concerned because the government was contemplating, maybe even planning, coming after them and persecuting them for their faith in Christ. And so these Jewish Christians, some of them apparently, were talking like maybe we should tone down our talk about Jesus. Maybe we should go back and participate in synagogue instead of in church. And so the writer of Hebrews finds this amazing, and so he's calling on them to remember who it is we're dealing with. I think you might find that Hebrews is maybe the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. It is The focus is on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Jesus the man, the high priest, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the risen one, the exalted one. And to turn away from him is to turn away from God. It's foolishness in the supreme. And so that is the situation our writer is addressing. Now, I just want to, as quickly as we can, make our way through each one of these things and talk a little bit, ask some maybe some practical questions as we go. You probably want to have a Bible open to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to start in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 1, we, we learn, actually it's in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. God has spoken lots of different ways in the past. In these days, his final word, if you will, his conclusion to all his speaking is Jesus, his Son. And Jesus doesn't just speak for God like a prophet. Jesus is the message of God. Jesus is the speech of God, the word of God, as John puts it in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. So what difference does it make that Jesus, that God has spoken to us in his Son and not just through prophets or scriptures? I mean, God could have just spoken, like, so we could all hear it in the sky or whatever. But he's spoken to us by the incarnation of Jesus. You know, we're beginning the season of Advent and uh, looking 
to Christmas, the celebration of the birth of the Savior. Well, this is not just the birth of the Savior. It's the birth of God, the Son, as a man. It's the incarnation of God. So God, when he speaks his final word, it's not... It's not uh, just an audible voice that we hear. It's not just the voice of a prophet or a spokesperson. It's God himself becoming one of us and living among us. Here's the thing we might realize in this, that is that God's goal in revelation, in speaking, <laughs> God's goal in revealing himself is a personal goal. It's his objective is to fellowship with his creatures, humanity. It's a goal of personal fellowship. It's not just about whether we recognize God in our minds. Uh, it's actually knowing God. And so he shows up face to face. One way of noticing this difference is to talk about the difference between trusting a person and believing a fact. These are two way, things we believe. And when the Bible talks about believing, when John, especially in the Gospel of John, talks about believing in the one God has sent, he says to his disciples, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's not just talking about admitting that something is true. He's talking about trusting persons. And so he shows up in person. We would also notice in this text, in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the organizing principle of the universe He says he's the source of all things, and he's the heir of all things, and he's the one who carries all things from its beginning in him to its conclusion in him. He's the storyteller of all the history of all things. He's the creator of all things. Nothing exists outside of a relationship of creature-creator with Jesus Christ who became one of us, who lived as a man. Everything begins and ends with him. Everything is carried from the beginning to the end by him. So what, what are the implications of this in our pursuit of knowledge, for example? Well, most of the time, us human beings, when we're trying to discover knowledge, when we're trying to know things, we, we just simply disregard the centrality of Christ in the pursuit of knowledge. In the modern age, for example, science is mostly an exercise of uh, what we would call a materi philosophical materialism. It denies the very existence of any supernatural reality. And then it also sort of makes this kind of corresponding claim that, thing, that religious things, if we don't want to say we deny God's existence, we just say God's existence is outside the realm of science. And so we do science as though God didn't exist, and after a while 
We're convinced by this science that we did as though God didn't exist. We're convinced by this science that he doesn't exist. We've just made a religious decision to deny the reality of God. Well, mostly what that means is we, we fail to notice that the material universe is a personal matter that it's created by a person and it's created for persons in human, human beings. And this is a, actually a reduction of things. We're thinking of things as less than what they actually are. It's, like, it's kind of like this. Suppose you had a radio and you're tuning your radio. Well, most radios don't receive uh, television signals. And so since you have a radio and you're tuned into radio stations and you hear all the radio stations and someone comes and tells you about television and you say, there's no such thing as television. I can prove it. See, I can't hear it on this radio. And so in our pursuit of knowledge, so much of the time, we, we focus on material things and on uh, temporal things, and we end up denying the existence of eternal things because we're not operating with the right instruments to perceive them. And so we have a limited understanding of everything, because we don't understand it with reference to Christ. And this significantly limits our enjoyment of it. And when we recognize that it's a created thing and that it's a personal thing, that it's created by a father for his children whom he loves, it gives us a whole nother level of enjoyment of the things we come to know even in the material universe. If we think we just happened, well, that's a lesser thing than understanding that God, our Father, gave us our earthly home. The same sort of reductionism happens in other areas of study or interest in knowledge, building up of knowledge in the humanities, in the arts if we depersonalize the universe. So far, we haven't even started talking about the sort of person that is at the heart of all things. Because here in Hebrews chapter 1, God didn't just make everything. He spoke to us in Christ. What does it mean to you personally that God has spoken to us in his Son? The greatest and best of all the mysteries of the universe is God's grace in Christ. Jesus showed up in person. Jesus became a part of his creation, a human being and reveals God. God has spoken to us in his Son. 
Now, I think I'm going to have to go faster as we proceed through the rest of this. <laughs> but if we go to the next section, it's really focused on the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has ascended. He's been given the name above all names. So we read in, the, in verse 3 that after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then the next verse says, having become... That's an interesting way of saying it. Having become superior, much superior, to the angels. So he's gone from below the angels to above the angels in this. So he made satisfaction for sins. He gave his life as a satisfaction of God's judgment for sins. And then he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, And as Paul puts it in Philippians, he was given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, that's interesting. Because Jesus is his earthly human name given to him by his earthly human parents. Now, God did tell them what to name him, but they gave him the name. And so when we say, at the name of Jesus... We're talking about a man, and that's important. And when we're talking about he's been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, well, the eternal Son of God has always been the right hand of the majesty on high. But the incarnate Son of God has regained his post as a man. In his death as a man, his human existence he has earned his position at the right hand of God. And so now, one of us is seated at God's right hand. And the point he makes in the rest of chapter 1 is, above the angels. He's the first one of us to move above the angels and to inherit a more excellent name than theirs. The writer quotes a string of Old Testament scriptures in, in chapter 1 here, and uh, he does so mostly without commenting as though they referred to Christ. And of course, the writer learned this from Jesus himself and the apostles, uh, that the Old Testament is aimed at Christ. The Old Testament, as Jesus said, is about him. Well, when we get to chapter 2, then, a response is called for. How, what are we to do, given this information that God has spoken to us in his Son by the incarnation of his Son as a man, and by the, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his posting above the angels? So, what should we do? Well, chapter 2 begins like this. Therefore, we must, pay, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What is it we've heard? Well, God speaking in his Son. And we should pay much closer attention. And I think, well, how does he know how much attention we're paying? Well, the problem is some of us are talking about turning away from Jesus and, you know, sort of minimizing the Jesusness of our faith and 
Uh, he's saying, no, you should pay closer attention to what God has said. Having noticed that God has spoken fully and finally through the incarnation of his son, this is the only reasonable response. Listen carefully. See Christ. Believe his gospel. Stick with him. Do we really need to be reminded of this? Apparently. (laughs) Is this hard to do? Well, apparently we get distracted. What distracts you from Christ? Well, I'll just give you a little confession. You know, almost anything can distract me from Christ. Literally, almost anything. And I can get focused on anything and forget all about Jesus for most of the week. And so one of the benefits of church (laughs) is it helps us to regather our focus and refocus our attention to pay attention to Christ. Now, this uh, text has an interesting way of putting this. It says, pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. So apparently we are prone to forget. Uh, Well, one reason we might drift away from Christ is sticking with Christ can be uncomfortable at times. And here in the setting of the book of Hebrews, we're anticipating some trouble because of Christ. If we're associated with Christ, We're going to be in this trouble. There's a cross to bear. Now the writer is saying it's clearly worth the cost, but that doesn't mean it's pain-free. And in our fallenness, we're prone, we get distracted by all kinds of things that are offered in the world. So this says, lest we drift away, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. We need to spend time dwelling on Christ, on who he is, on his significance in history, on his personal significance in our own lives, on the fact that he is the great provision of God that assures us that God is always providing How do you know God is good? Well, the only really satisfactory answers to that question is Jesus. Jesus is the proof that God is good. So this response is pay attention to Christ and don't let the current of the world pull you away or wash you away. That's kind of what the meaning of that word, drift away, is. If you have experience uh, swimming in almost any natural body of water, scuba diving, you have experienced current. And sometimes there's enough of a current that if you aren't latched on to the ground, it will wash you away. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, latch on to Jesus so that you don't get washed away. Because there are forces that would tend to distract you or remove your attention. 
in the next part of uh, chapter 2 in verses 5 through 9, we read about Jesus as the the prototypical or consummate human being. The writer refers to Psalm 8, which is about, which is the psalm that starts with, what is man? What is man? That God is concerned with man. And the psalm concludes, is, is sort of a commentary on Genesis chapter 1 and points out to us that man is God's crowning creative achievement that all the rest of creation is uh, in the dominion of man, and humanity is God's best creation. And the reason is because humanity is created to reflect God's nature in the rest of creation. Humanity, human beings are made to live in walk in fellowship with God and to translate that fellowship into the creation itself, to reign with God over the rest of creation. It's kind of a supreme place, and that is what the writer of Psalm 8 is commenting on. But here in the book of Hebrews, you know who the subject of Psalm 8 is? Jesus, not everybody, he particularizes Psalm 8 to be about Jesus. Why would he do that? What's the point of limiting the application of that psalm to Jesus in this way? Why him and not all of us? And the answer to that question is, apart from him, none of us realize Psalm 8. It's we are, These things are only realized in and through Jesus. Only in, if the Son of God becomes human do we see humanity perfected in God's design. Humanity is created to represent God in the created order. And sin has ruined us in this respect. It's obscured the image of God in human beings. And Jesus is the consummate human being. He's the one who has realized these things. Here's here's what we mean. Jesus walked at all times his whole life in perfect, unbroken uh, fellowship with God the Father. That's what he said in the book of John that we studied in the last couple of years. He, He always was perfectly attentive to God the Father, as a man, trusting in his direction, following him. He says, I only do what I see him doing. What is that? Well, that's him bearing the image of God as a man into creation so that he could say to his apostles, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's the image of God in a man. And Jesus is the one who actually realized that. Adam had it and broke it, and we are born in that broken condition. So Jesus is how we come to be restored to full humanity. We are only fully human as we are in Christ. He's the pioneer human. 
What we are apart from him is dead humans. What we are in him is fully human. He's the achiever of humanity. And he did this from our position of death. He died and rose again. And in that, he has gone as far as we go and leads us back into fellowship with God. He reconciles us to God, and that restores our true humanity. Then in verses 10 through 18, Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Well, this is the same thing. He's, he's perfected in suffering. He took on our nature, if we read this text. Flesh and blood, he said he, he had to in order to be our Savior. He's an embodied human person. And then in this text we read this, he, through death he destroyed the one who holds the power of death. He delivered his brothers, those he set apart, the offspring of Abraham. He delivered them from slavery to sin and death into restored life, into resurrection, into fellowship with God, into image-bearing of God. And so to do this, he was made like his brothers in every respect we read in this text. Made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation. Wow, that's a $5 word. Propitiation means satisfaction, to satisfy the judgment of God on humans. Jesus died. He was tested in every way like we are. Tested or tempted in every way like we are. And because of that, he's able to help those who are tempted. And Jesus the test was all the way to the point of dying. And he passes the test. He trusts himself utterly to the Father in giving up his life as a sacrifice for sin. Now, the way this text says this is it was fitting. <laughs> it was fitting Sorry, I just need to find it here. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus the man is perfected through suffering. And so he is in a position to serve us as high priest. And this is the text, of course, where it says, for this reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He has called us into the brotherhood of his own life. He has called us to be his brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because he has given himself as a sacrifice for sin. And he has pioneered, he's been the trailblazer of the path of our salvation. He's the one who trusted God ultimately 
and leads us to trust God in himself. So how should we respond to this? Well, chapter 3 begins with the word, therefore, holy brothers. Now that's a reference to chapter 2, right? Because in chapter 2, the brothers are being sanctified or made holy. So he says to you, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus. Well, this is very much like what he said before. Think about Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. You know, I have a lot of problems. Here's my main problem. The problem that is at the heart of all my problems. It's inadequate consideration of Jesus. I need to consider Jesus. Whatever I'm dealing with, I really need to consider Jesus. And in, in trusting in him, I find the satisfaction of life. And I can follow God wherever he leads me, whatever trouble he might lead me through, whatever difficulty I might have to face. In trusting in Christ, I can face it. And I can proceed in faith. I just want you to think about whether there are some ways you've found to do that, some situations in your own life where you had some trouble you were facing and in trusting in Christ, you could face it. Because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He's able to help those who are tempted, tested, troubled, because He has had the same experience. He's not a distant Savior. He's not a God, uh, you know, in in the distance. He is with us in this life. And so we need to consider him in this life. In, uh, in the, Next few verses in chapter 3, we read about Jesus as greater than Moses. Now, this is quite a thing to say to a group of Hebrews. But, of course, they would have already recognized this since they know Christ. And that is, in fact, what he says. And he, he points out to them that Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is the eternal Son of God. Christ was in touch with God on a level even greater than Moses. And then he calls upon us to give a particular response to that. He says, therefore, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What does it mean to harden your heart? Well, it means to resist. It means to give inadequate attention. It means not to trust what God says. This is what Adam and Eve did. They hardened their hearts. This is what the people of Israel did when God led them right up to the door of the promised land, and they said, mm, it's too hard. What, was, what really happened, according to this text, was they did not believe God. God said, I'll give it to you. 
They said, we can't do it. God said, of course you can't, but I'll give it to you. And they said, no. They hardened their hearts. This is just another way of saying to for a person to confirm his opinion of unbelief. So when we hear the good news of God's grace in Christ, we can go one of two ways. We can go on in or we can resist. And that's what it means to harden your heart. And of course, in this text, the relationship uh, to, uh, well, the relationship between belief and obedience is so clear that they become synonymous with each other. To believe is to obey, and to disobey is to fail to believe. And you can see this in the life of Israel when they come to this decision point, this crisis, if you will. They they can either believe, and if they believe God, when God says, I'll give it to you, what would they do? Well, they'd keep walking. They'd go in. When they refuse to go in, this tells us that they have refused to believe. Now, this text also gives us some responsibilities for each other in the church. It says, take care, lest there be here among us an evil heart of unbelief. He's saying, look, look out for each other. Look out for each other. Be careful. Encourage one another so that no one will be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we do that? Practically speaking, how can we carry out these duties to sort of watch out for unbelief within, among Christians, among people in the church? Of course, it's possible for people to be a part of the church and not have actually put their trust in Christ. That's one thing we should watch out for. We shouldn't just assume everyone here must be a Christian already. Because maybe they're not. And how can we tell? Well, we talked about this, remember? People who trust in Christ, how do you know if you've really trusted in Christ? Well, the answer to that question is you keep on trusting in Christ. And when you have a crisis where you're thinking about, do I really trust in Christ, what do you do? You trust in Christ. You don't try to shape up your behavior. You recognize that the, the source of all good Christian behavior is faith in Christ. And when we trust, we obey. And if we don't obey, it's because we haven't trusted. So if I find myself not obeying and wondering about my faith, what do I do? Try harder to obey? No. Trust Him. Trust Him. So how do we do this? Well, we need to know each other. That does mean, actually, that we kind of need to meet in person. Uh, there's knowing each other. You know, I'll bet there's very few people that you really know that you've never met in person. 
I guess it's possible these days that you might know someone and not know them in person, but it's pretty rare, even now, even in this age of Zoom meetings and online worship services, it's kind of important that we meet face-to-face. I would encourage you, even in this season where we can't gather here in the church, put together a little watch party, get together with other people to participate in the service and uh, be together, watch out for each other. We have to get a little creative right now in order to do that. But I encourage you to do just that. We also have to abandon our pride and self-righteousness. I need to let you know me. Mm. There, yeah, you know, that can be a little uncomfortable. I need to acknowledge to you that I'm not a fully formed, perfect human being quite like Jesus yet. And so you might help me, and I might help you. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to encourage faith, we need to know each other. And that requires a little transparency. I need to trust you with who I really am. It also requires me to abandon my self-righteousness. <laughs> I can't go around thinking I'm good, uh, better than you, and I'm already righteous because of what I've done. No, the right, any real righteousness I possess is Christ's righteousness on me and maybe reflected in me. You know, sometimes we offer the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. We preach the gospel in ungracious ways. With uh, We deal out the word of God with an unforgiving hand. So sometimes we say the truth and we behave in a way that denies the truth we say. So we aren't helping each other to trust in Christ when we do that. This is especially important for parents before your children. Demonstrate grace. And that doesn't mean you act like you're perfect. That means you cling to your salvation in Christ. You live as a desperate sinner in front of your children. A desperate sinner saved by God's good grace in Jesus. In this way, we focus attention on Jesus. We focus attention on the privilege of associating with him. We prize Christ. And we don't have a hard heart when we prize Christ. And this is really what the rest of the chapter is about when it talks about entering his rest. And this we've talked about recently. What should we be afraid of in this text is the possibility that someone might not enter his rest. And entering his rest is a matter of faith, primarily, first and foremost. It is about trusting him. It is not about anything you do. You enter his rest. 
And that brings us to the closing that we've come to last Sunday, which is the, a reflection on the nature of God's word, the sharper than any two-edged sword scalpel word of God that cuts us open and leaves us laid bare before God, accountable to God. What a desperate situation that is if we don't have Jesus, the high priest. But we do. We do. And this whole text aims at this reality that when God speaks, we pay attention. When God speaks, we hear his voice. And we don't harden our hearts. We go on in. We trust him. We believe what he says. We trust him. And then we act accordingly. You always act according to your faith. Your actions sort of reveal your faith in this way. So we act, by first of all, by trusting him. And then we will act accordingly. And then we will endure joyfully. This... Uh, text, it advises us to hold fast our confession. Our confession is Christ. We say what God says. And what does God say? Christ. We agree. That's the very word confess. It means to same say, (laughs) to agree. And it's not just Okay, we admit it's true. It's truly true agreement. We trust ourselves to it because we know it's true. And that is holding fast our confession of Christ. And when we pay attention, when God speaks and we pay attention, we believe what he says, we trust him, we act out of that, we also find help according to this text. We draw near to God. Well, prayer is the central thing in the Christian life. It's drawing near to God in Christ. It it is looking to God. It is seeking God. It is going on in where Christ has led. And in all these things, we experience and enjoy God's good grace in Christ. Even when God's good grace in Christ leads through troubled waters, we still know God is good all the time. And even in those troubled waters, he is producing something in our lives that one day we will be thankful for. You know, the scripture talks about rejoicing in kind of a crazy way. We read it in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. In everything, give thanks. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have this sort of three, three statements. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, In every situation, give thanks. Really? Every situation? Yeah. 
How's that even possible? And the scripture says there in 1 Thessalonians, this is 1 Thessalonians 5.18, this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. For you. Not against you. Sometimes we read these things, rejoice in the Lord always, and we take that as some kind of burden. We have to force ourselves to rejoice. <laughs> and so that's even possible. We have to force ourselves to be obedient to God's commandments, and so we must rejoice no matter how we feel. Well, that's ridiculous. This is not a, a burden. This is not a list of demands. This is an opportunity that we have in the grace of God in Christ. In, the, in Christ, we can rejoice always. And so you should because you can. In Christ, you can have a life that is a prayer without ceasing. In other words, you can walk as Jesus did in fellowship with God Almighty at all times as your Father provider. Not as your demanding boss, as your father provider. In Christ, that is your relationship. And you can, as Hebrews puts it, draw near. You can just walk on into the throne of God, and it's a throne of grace to you, not a throne of punishment. And you can receive the help you need. And you can trust that whatever help he gives is the help you need. Because he is good, and we trust in him. We rejoice always, we pray always, we give thanks always. In every situation, this is a proposition of an opportunity. It is not a list of demands. God is not saying, you have to rejoice, you. Hey, you're not rejoicing. That's just dumb. He's saying, focus your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the goodness of God, the love of God, the joyfulness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the extension of the eternal fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit into your very life and rejoice. Rejoice always. And by the way, you don't ever have to leave from the throne of grace. You can walk around in this world wherever you go and be in the presence of God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So the book of Hebrews is elevating Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our vision, so that we focus our attention on the goodness of God in Christ. And so we trust him. And so our lives are transformed by that faith. Father, we give you thanks for this great reality. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in it all the time. We know that we have this opportunity in him, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.